This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. On this episode, I talked to Derek Millman, whose debut release, Scream All Night, comes out on July the 24th. And as you'll hear, Scream All Night is a dark comedy that deals with the making of B-monster movies. And so Derek explains what went into and the idea behind uh, this story. So listen in. Uh, so yeah, so we'll just, uh, go ahead and get started then. Um, so Derek, what book hooked you? Um, I thought I was thinking about this for a while and, uh, I went back in my, um, in my sort of memories about books that really hooked me when I was young. And I think I have to focus on Michael Crichton because I think one of the first books that really, really hooked me was the Andromeda strain. And I have such a clear memory of the book itself because it was like a library book. There was like a plastic cover. I remember that. I remember what the cover looked like. And there was something about the story um, that I had just never encountered before. Um, it's about, there's like a, a satellite crashes from outer space into a small town and pretty much everyone dies except two people. So they figure out immediately there's some sort of extraterrestrial contamination um, they have and the government has this you know sort of imaginary um protocol in place for this to happen and the scientist goes in and there's two survivors a, a crying baby and an old man and they kind of have to figure out um what what links these two as they try to figure out what what this uh contaminant is um and it's 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 fascinating it's it's sort of like the um it's obviously very science fiction um there's some pretty scary elements because everyone's died of like uh, lethal blood clotting. It's a weird way to, to go. Uh, this enti- entire town is, is dead. Um, and, you know, it's like this interesting mix of the, of the real world and uh, fantastical elements that sort of bleed into it, whether it's this, um, I think I remember him going on at length about what the government does would do if there's some sort of alien invasion, if there's some sort of extraterrestrial pathogen or contaminant and even, and how if there is an alien invasion or something like that, it would sort of bring all the the world together. All the countries would come together or wars would end. There's a lot of interesting stuff there that he was sort of going on about. I think it gets a bit silly towards the end. Cause I think the, um, whatever it is, this pathogen starts like attacking, like, inanimate objects like the, <laughs> the rubber ceiling on the door in the in the lab or something but it's got, it's just a fascinating story i remember i couldn't put it down and i got obsessed with michael crichton i started i read this strange memoir he wrote uh called travels which is about him go, traveling the world after i think the great train robbery which is the book he wrote became a, a, a movie success with sean connery or something it was like around that time and he went traveling around and had these crazy new agey experiences about like um, astral projection and psychic this and a guy covered with bees. I just remember all these. I, I remember it like in, in a visceral way because it was like in middle school and I couldn't put the book down even in class. I was like in science class and I couldn't put the book down. I had to figure out like what was going on with him. And then I read Sphere. Um, which is also another really interesting merging of the science fiction and a little bit of horror um, and time travel. Um, and 
that also couldn't put it down. So I was for a while very much obsessed with Michael Christ, you could say. And so you kind of mentioned uh, that this, you remember this as being a library book. So were you just kind of an avid reader around this point in your life where you were, you know, you had the books that you were buying, but you were also going to the library a lot to get books? Did I lose you? Are you still there? I am still here. Can you hear me or not? How in the world? Let me try something. Does that does that work? Yes. Okay. I don't. Sometimes Google Voice uh, plays funny things with me. Yes, I got you. Uh, so where was I? <laughs> All right, you mentioned. I know you fell asleep at a board. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was here. I was here. I don't know why that turned off. Um. So where was it? Oh, did yes. you get all that? Or? I did. I got it all. Yep. I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> Like, I totally bored this guy. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Not, <laughs> He's not snoring cool. at his desk. Not at all. So you mentioned that uh, this book, from what you remember, uh, was likely a library book. Uh, so was that kind of common for you? Were you an avid reader enough that you were going to the library quite frequently uh, to kind of uh, get through the next book because you had already finished the past one? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm trying to remember that, actually, um, because I would definitely buy books. I think that was like more of a rarity. I'd get them as a gift. Usually these sort of glossy uh, Hardy Boys. I remember really being obsessed with getting all of those in physical form. Um, I mean, as not physical form, but like owning them as opposed to the library. But I would spend a fair amount of time at the library. We had a very nice one where I grew up um, in Westchester. And um the, the reading room itself is just beautiful. It's just like this giant circular classroom surrounded by like open green fields. It's like anyone would want to um, read a book there. And I remember as a little kid, there were sort of summer reading programs. They still do that now yeah. um, where you read a certain amount of books and you win something. But I, I did it so easily. <laughs> I did it in like a week. Uh, we were supposed to take all summer. I would just like read constantly. Um so I, I definitely remember that being a library book. And I think it was given to me by my mom. She's like, oh, you might like this. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely like a big library goer. And so with Michael Crichton uh, and being drawn to some of, more of his books that had that sci-fi or, or the fantastic uh, elements in it, was that usually type of books that you uh, were attracted to and maybe even going farther into movies and television? Not specifically, no. I had a Michael Crichton phase, but as I as I grew up and he started writing more recent books, um, he started disappointing me a little because they read like screenplays. I remember Rising Sun was like, ugh. And then even reading Jurassic Park, I'm like, first of all, this is one of the greatest ideas ever. And obviously this is written to be a movie. It's a screenplay. Um, but um, it's not really a novel. It's just a brilliant idea. So I, I had, I moved on to a lot of other things. Uh, Stephen King was one, uh, I think once I entered high school, I started, I think Misery was maybe the first book I read by him. And again, that was something I just couldn't put down. It was so messed up and it was so riveting. It's like, is this guy going to escape? And then I moved on to reading It and I read Pet Cemetery and Night Shift. I wasn't like obsessed with horror. I just kind of liked his writing. Uh, I liked the stories he was telling. I wasn't reading other horror books. Um, and at the same time, I was, um, as I moved into high school, I had this long like legal pad where I would just basically write down every classic novel I had heard about, and I had to read them all. 
um, like hit all the major American authors or the Russian authors, you know, um, from Faulkner to uh, Fitzgerald and then, you know, and then the European Joyce and um, Thomas Hardy. The, that was kind of what we were reading in high school at the time. Um, like we read two Thomas Hardy books. Um, I just remember being bored out of my mind with him, uh, especially um, Tess of the Durbervilles, which I think I felt like that took forever in my life to get through that book. Um, so I was, I would try to read for pleasure as well. And I had been a Hardy Boys fanatic as a kid. Um, I loved, as I mentioned, I loved those new versions of the books, but we had, when I was a little kid, um, I was friends with, I didn't really like kids my own age. I would go across the street and I'd hang out with my, my neighbors, which was like this elderly couple. They had grown children and they were like, just like living, they were like living alone, but I mean, not alone, but they did their kids were out of the house. Sure. They had all their things. So I remember them taking me up to the attic and I had just a stack of those old Hardy Boys books, like the blue covers from like the fifties. And they were just like, take whatever you want. Um, and I just took stacks of those old books that have those really cool illustrations, but and I'll have titles like the, you know, the, the mystery of the glowing owl or the, the curse of the missing bauble. And so it was like great titles. So like, I just want to read those. Um, and that was, and so I read those contrasted with the newer Hardy Boys books, um, which were a little slicker. I'm like, how is this one man writing all these books? <laughs> I didn't find out until later. It's like a corporation. Right. There's no Frank Dixon sitting around writing, <laughs> writing a book a week. Um, and at the same time as well, my dad would bring me home books. And I, I, I remember this because I was in my old house. I must have been under 10 years old, but he gave me a paper bag. And inside was like all of J.D. Salinger's books. But not Catcher in the Rye, like Seymour, um, nine stories, um, for any and Zoe, like stuff like an eight-year-old boy would probably have no idea. <laughs> There's like a lot of stuff on Eastern philosophy and this, this, uh, genius family. But because I was introduced to, Sal to Salinger at such a young age, I think that helped develop the voice I have to, for, to write YA. Um, because I revisited all those books later and it was sort of already in my head, just the rhythms, the way the characters speak their braininess, their torment, it was all sort of there. And do you think you really, being so young and being introduced to Salinger, uh, do you remember what, like, your first kind of reactions or what, what you thought of those books when you first kind of got into them at, at such a young age were handed them? I was too young to understand A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, which is that famous story right. from Nine Stories. So it, it, it's so simple. And at the end, he shoots and he just kills himself. And I was just like, why did he do that? He, met, he meets this little girl on the beach. And, and then he just goes back to his hotel room and commits suicide. And it was so disturbing to me. I had, I just, it seemed like such a simple story. And then that's the ending. And I, 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 you know, obviously, years later, you read more about post-traumatic stress disorder and all the different, um, you know, things that were going on with that character. Um, but I remember being very confused by that. But by the time I think I was in freshman year of high school and we're like, here is one of the books we're going to be studying, Catcher in the Rye. I was like, oh, been there, done that. I, <laughs> I, I read that. I think it was the I read that after I read all the Glass family stuff. Um, so, I mean, revisiting that again. It was, you know, I had a new appreciation for it. I, that's one of the books I still come back to. Um, it's just something so, I don't know, cinematic and sad and just very powerful about that story, even though 
you know, it's so ingrained in us. Sure. Like you can't really see it as a book anymore because it's like ingrained in our consciousness, like like a Led Zeppelin song. Right. You can't like hear the song like Stairway to Heaven anymore because it's like you wait, you're born with it already in your brain. Sure. Um, but it's a, it's um, you know, that was a book that I think um, sort of introduced the world to the modern concept of voice, especially right. a young voice. I don't think there's anything before that did that. So I don't think we'd be here today without that. Sure. Absolutely. And did you ever question or wonder what, uh, why your dad gave you those books at, at such a young age? I mean, he, um, I think that he knew I liked to read and I had all these, um, how do I describe it? I had these little books and they were sort of like kids versions of classics, uh-huh. uh, whether it was Moby Dick or Tom Sawyer or Huxton, but I found them, I didn't realize they, cause I was very young. I didn't realize they were um, like kid-friendly versions of the story. That they were actually, the, actually, like the concept of a novel hadn't really. Sure. I didn't know what that was yet. So I think I I was bored by them, and I didn't quite understand what they were. They were just basically like plot summaries of Moby Dick. Except I remember in in that one specifically, there was like a scary photo of one of the characters that would freak me out. Um, so I think he saw that I was maybe getting a little frustrated with the, <laughs> the lack of character, character psychology, lack of character psychologies in these, uh, kid friendly classic books, um, like Huxton. Like, I think I remember Tom Sawyer and Huxton and Moby Dick. I can't remember the others. Um, and so maybe he was trying to challenge me a little bit more so that I would, um, get into reading uh which which i did it worked um but i do remember that very specifically um and just not i just being confused by those sort of classic stories i remember also reading robinson caruso when i was when i was very young and i'm being really into that story i think that was a kid version of that but the story itself was hooked me mm-hmm. um this is a venture story and so you're growing up uh, reading all these books and, and reading pretty widely. At what point uh, were you also uh, as avid a writer as you were a reader? Um, I had started writing short stories, um, trying to think specifically when, uh, probably around second grade was the first time I started writing little short stories and I would share them in class. There was like a series I wrote about a UFO or something. And, and I, my classmates were like riveted by it. And I, you know, and my teacher was very, very encouraging. And she's like, you really know how to tell a story. And so I started, you know, reading more. And then I think when I was like maybe 13 or 14, I would write short stories here and there. But I remember when I wouldn't do it often, but when I would do it, I would get like really involved in it. Like I would have a friend over and I would just completely forget about him. <laughs> just kind of concentrate on the craft of the short story. Like I was Raymond Carver or something. Um, and then at that time I started a humor magazine, um, which you may have read about if you went on my website or anything. Um, and I would write little short uh, stories and little funny tidbits and blurbs and stuff. And I would, sort of put it together, Xerox all the copies, all the pages, and put it together, and I would sell it in stores. I'd even bike around and get advertising from local businesses. That's great. And so I would sell it in area stores. I remember the first day where, like, one of the stores was like, we're going to put put it in a rack right here by the door. I was like, I 
one of the happiest moments of my life, just seeing my magazine there. Um, and so I did that for a while, maybe two or three years, um, off and on, whenever I could. It wasn't like a monthly magazine. I, I was in school, so I mean, there's not a lot of time. Maybe I made, maybe four issues a year, but I would try to keep to that. Um, and I had friends like who would illustrate the covers and stuff. We would, we'd try to make the cover uh, in color. My dad helped me out with a lot of the printing and, I mean, obviously, because I didn't have, <laughs> really have the budget. Um, but I would—I I remember feeling like, and I told this to Harper Collins when, when we had our like uh, meet and greet like a few weeks ago, when I met the whole um, team there. I—I so, um, I remember being embarrassed that I was the only one doing do, working on the magazine, so I had to create a staff because um, I wanted—I wanted it to seem like a real magazine. So I would make up all these fake names and fake positions that couldn't possibly exist and put it in the back like a normal magazine would, like staff, like you know envelope opener and you know <laughs> paper stacker just things that don't exist with crazy names like you know eugene thoroughgood <laughs> nick nick dylan dylan or something like that or i don't know i would just get i would go crazy with the name um and maybe that was like my first my introduction to actually creating characters right. or, or fictional names um which are always fun so um, the I did not start like then in college like I was accepted into a fiction program but I turned it down to do a media writing program so I wrote my first I started out as a playwright sort of um, and was writing plays for a while until I got into grad school for acting in which and when I stopped writing completely because I just felt like I'm not a writer so I stopped um, but then as the young adult marketplace took on as it evolved and as I evolved creatively, I started writing again and I started writing fiction and all those stories sort of bubbled up from the Salinger to the Huxton to everything to the Michael Crichton and it all kind of came out. Um, and, you know, I wrote my first manuscript. It was like not that long ago, maybe 2013 um, and got like immediate attention. I got my agent from it. Didn't sell, um, but I kept going and I wrote like, two other books. The second one was Scream All Night, which sold. Um, and I don't think I could have started doing that. And, you know, you know, even like 2004, 2005, I don't think I could have done it then. Um, the marketplace wasn't where it was at. Other things needed to happen first. First J.K. Rowling needed to happen. Sure. Then all the subgenres needed to sort of, you know, appear like the new contemporary, like what John Green sort of paid for everyone. Um, all those subgenres have to sort of find their place too, um, because Scream Light's a kooky story, um, and people had to take some level of risks <laughs> to uh, to bring it to the world. Um, so we had to get there. So I had to find. I had to wait for my time. Sure. And so, as you mentioned, Scream All Night uh, comes out on July 24th. Uh, so to talk about that, let's start off. Give me kind of what is the synopsis of the book. Um, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Dario who is legally emancipated from his eccentric family. He's living in a group home called Keenan House. His father is a legendary B-horror movie filmmaker, and Dario grew up um, in this castle called Moldavia that doubles as the studio, as the Moldavia Studios, and they, it's a giant gothic castle, uh, and they have all all their production takes place inside the castle. 
uh, from the costume design from to the uh, lighting design to a repertory group of actors called the Spine Tinglers. They all live and work inside this castle that has many, many wings. Um, and no one even needs to go outside, although they do. They film by a lake, but everything's on the property. It's very secretive. Um, and Dario's mother was mentally ill, uh, is mentally ill, and um, his father um, didn't really have time for him, but cast him as the lead in this zombie movie called Har- Zombie Children of the Harvest Sun. But he really did want to make um, uh, Dario into a bit of a monster. So he, he abused him during the production, physically, emotionally. He was really trying to push him to the brink uh, so that he could get this performance out of him. And once that was over, Dario was out of there. He got legally emancipated. He just wasn't being taken care of there. Uh, and neither was his mother, um, who gets who was institutionalized. But then Dar- Dario gets called back home. He's about to turn 18. He's trying to decide about his future. And his father, who's 91, is dying. Um, and his much older brother, Oren, uh, calls him and says, you need to come home. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure how many spoilers. I don't know what's <laughs> what the spoiler or not. But Dario winds up inheriting um, the studio and has to decide whether or not he should embrace his legacy um, or leave all the pain and the hurt behind. But it's, it's tough because he always sort of wanted to have a family, um, which is broken and in shards, but he has his, his older brother. Uh, he has to the studio's output. He has all the people who live and work there to consider. And he has his, a girl named Haley who he grew up with there um, and always loved. And she's there and, you know, and she's sort of taken over and is almost running the place. Then he has her to consider too, because they're in love uh, and they rediscover that. So there's a lot of decisions he has to make in terms of whether he can stay there and save the studio, save the legacy, keep it going, or if he needs to move on with his life, which is what he wanted to do and leave it all behind. So in a nutshell, that's what it's about. It's a black comedy. It has a screwball tone. Uh, which is what I was going for. It's a a very zany place because there's lots of, you know, Mm -hmm. frenetic movie making and people making fake monsters and zombies and mummies. And it's all these classic sort of style creature features. But, you know, there's, it's about sort of like escaping the horrors of the real world um, to escape, to embrace the fake horrors, the paper mache monsters, the, the mummies made out of plastic. And it's also about the monstrous sides of real people versus the ones that we make, you know, to, to scare us. Cause I think horror is definitely having a moment right now in the zeitgeist. I think we're all trying to escape the horrors of the real world. to these fictional horrors that we can, these cinematic horrors that we can deal with. So I'm hoping screen all night's coming out at like the exact right time. Sure. And so when you were first starting to write uh, scream all night, what was uh, some of your inspirations or what was that initial kind of spark, uh, that initial idea that got you going with this? So many, many years ago, I had the, I just had an idea about a kid who inherits a horror movie studio. And that was it. And I pictured like a very kooky, eccentric family and kind of like a, an arrested development meets the monsters type thing, but no supernatural elements, just a very like screwball tone. But I had no idea how to execute that. It just seemed too far-fetched and ambitious. So many years had to pass and I had to write other things and develop my voice. Um, And then when you get to a certain point, 
or if you get attention like I did for a manuscript I wrote, people ask you what else you're, you, you know, you, you're considering working on, what you're going to write. And every time I would tell people this one sentence idea, people would freak out. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe I have to write it. So what wound up grounding it was reading about Hammer Horror films because they had to deal with Universal in the 1950s, uh, which meant they could um, make all these classic creature features, all these monsters. Universal owns the look of all those monster movies. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if people realize that. For instance, Frankenstein, Mummy, all that stuff is like in the public domain, Dracula. But Universal owns the look. Um, so whenever you, I say Frankenstein, whatever you picture, that's what Universal owns because they created the, the look. So if you're, you're, you're welcome to make your own <laughs> Frankenstein adaptation, but it can't look anything like uh, what Universal did. So Hammer had a deal with Universal where they could make all these classic creature features, um, whether it's Dracula and Frankenstein or the mummy or the Gorgon or whatever it is. And for a while, they did actually move production to Bray Studios, which is in the it was a manor house in the English countryside. And they did have a repertory company of actors who would later go on to be famous, like Oliver Reed and Peter Cushing, who went on to be in Star Wars. And uh, Christopher Lee would usually play Dracula. Uh, and they made some really kooky movies. They did like a Dracula kung fu movie. <laughs> Um, uh, they would do the werewolf. They would do all the monsters. Um, and they would, they would film in this house. It wasn't even that big. Um, that's why if you see these movies, um, they look a little drab and they, there's not much to look at because they're just kind of like going in from room to room. <laughs> there's like three rooms in every movie. Um, and they filmed in this house where they had filmed Rocky Horror, I think, before. Um, Hammer started in the 50s, but then they moved production later to Bray. Um, and once they filmed in every angle, using every angle of every room, they left. Uh, but so for a while, they were all there. They weren't necessarily living there like they are in Scream All Night. It wasn't like um, everyone had a room or a wing of the castle, they, but they would film there. Um, and so I read a lot about the history of Hammer. Um, and I looked a lot. I watched a lot of the movies and they even have a book of the movie posters called The Art of Hammer, which is a great book because their posters are phenomenal. They're so fun and pulpy. And I did some reading also about trauma films, which is different, but similar, but different, where they did like the Toxic Avenger and more exploitative type films. Um, Lloyd Kaufman, who started the studio, wrote a book uh, called All I Need to Know About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. And that's a, it's a fun book um, about a sort of, the horror sleazy company that made these movies. And I also looked into ca uh, Canon films. And so like doing all this research, it grounded it. It made it more real to me. That's why there's a lot of details in the book about, not a lot, but you know, details about filmmaking, what lenses you might use here or like what harnesses you might use or what you use to, for blood or um, just the authenticity I felt was necessary to the story to sort of ground it and make a very, um, sort of fantastical place, a little bit more real, um, because it has a dark emotional core and to sort of like pull that into place, I needed all those details. This is literally how a studio would work if it existed in a giant castle <laughs> that you might find in Bavaria, but that right. exists somewhere in the United States. Um, so that helps, yes. And so then, because you have training as a playwright and as an actor, 
beyond just the subject matter of Scream All Night, when it came to uh, your writing craft, how did that training uh, in acting uh, and in the theater, do you think it lent itself uh, to uh, actually writing a story? Absolutely, because, um, well, I went to grad school. I got into Yale School of Drama as, a, as an actor, not as a writer. As I was in, on the acting track, which is a serious place and a serious thing to to experience. First of all, I think a lot of being there, because uh, you are part of this repertory company, this weird insular world where we all kind of live and work together and we play characters for each other, you know, in various shows, the whole system of Yale drama works a little bit like Moldavia as this sort of machine that kind of like chews you up and spits you out a little bit. Um, but when you, when you work closely with language, especially when we were working very closely with um, the playwriting program, which were these new playwrights, you get to, you know, you, it's collaborative. So you get to work with their writing and you're exposed to, to writers. You're around writers all the time. Um, and you sort of pick up, um, on their style and you get a sense of language because you, you're working with Shakespeare and you get a sense of, you get an ear for dialogue because you're working with new plays. Um, and because of your acting training, you're getting a sense of conflict and how important that is for story. Um, and you're getting a sense of stakes, uh, how the stakes need to be high. Um, and you're getting a sense of how to form a, a character, a psychological profile for a character, what characterization means. Uh, how people need and want things in every scene. Um, now, I don't think every actor could necessarily write, but I think a lot do. I think a lot could when you have that background. I was able to transition quite easily. So to me, it's obvious because it's very, there's a lot of parallels. Um, because we're all, it's all in the end, it's a storytelling. Um, but a lot of my training in terms of um, dialogue and language and, Scene objectives and life objectives lended itself easily to uh, to writing novels and to writing fiction in general. And so, when you were, let me start over here. With your novels, uh, did you always sort of have in mind that you were going to write within the YA category, or did you just kind of find that the stories that you started off with sort of ended up naturally? falling into uh, the YA space? I think it's the second thing. The first thing I wrote was this um, sort of sci-fi horror mashup called, uh, at the time it was called The Grey Light Chronicles. And um, everyone wanted to buy it. Um, I got almost Penguin tried to buy it, HarperCollins tried to buy it, but it kept sh getting shut down at acquisitions because everyone was like, this is too ambitious. We don't have any comp titles for this. Then Stranger Things came along, and it's pretty much that. <laughs> it's very similar, because it's not set in the 80s. But I was like, this is exactly what I was doing. I don't understand why. And it's a huge hit. Um, but like, I just had this idea about a kid who, um, who you know, has this genetic anomaly, and it allows him to sort of travel through his consciousness into sort of a dark, parallel version of his suburban town, uh, where he discovers his father was, you know, his father is missing and was a scientist. I think we're revisiting the Michael Crichton inspiration um, and realizes his father in this dark sort of parallel world actually had a second family. And so it becomes, it's a mystery, but there are sci-fi and horror elements because he has this half brother who starts coming after him. Um, and once I wrote that, I just, cause I had, I started reading why and I'm like, I think I can do this. I know it's, it, it was like, 
it was just happening at that time. Um, it was everywhere. So I just, I tried that. And once I did, people were like, your, your voice is perfect for YA. Um, keep going. I just got a lot of encouragement. Um, I didn't specifically set out to only write YA. And I don't know if I will in my lifetime only write YA. I don't know. Um, but it was, I think the ideas that I have or my thinking and my humor match up easily with that because um, I guess characters of that age are going through so much. They're going through so much emotionally. They're going through so much uh, in terms of their experience in life and experiencing new things. Um, And it's such a frenetic, exciting genre because everyone seems to eat it up and you can talk to kids and you can talk to adults through it. Um, So, I don't know. There's something about it that just appeals to me. I think it just goes back to uh, the books that I read and loved as a kid from like Huck Finn to Tom Sawyer to, um, to the Michael Crichton stuff, to the Hardy boys, to uh, the Salinger stuff. There's a through line. They're all young characters, even what's considered literary fiction now and things that I really like, like the Goldfinch. It's it's basically like a, it's like a YA book. Um, These are all young young people and i you know i was thinking about it recently i was talking about the blogger or something like you know a lot of like the classic novels that we love from um this side of paradise to even you know portrait of the artist as young man they're about young people and there's a reason um not all of them i don't know old man on the sea um but they're 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 young people so there's a reason there's something very literary about writing young characters because they're seeing everything or experience everything for the first time. Things are fresh and things are very hyperbolic, uh, not just in terms of their language, but just in terms of, of their um, existence. And I just think that's interesting to write about um, for me anyway, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. I understand completely. Uh, so a few questions sort of as we wind down now, uh, First one being, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? Um, for sure, it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's That's my favorite movie of all time. I think it's better than the book. Um, it is just a work of genius. Anchored by one of the greatest screen performances of all time. It is tragic. It is funny. Very, very few movies can straddle both tones um, and make you laugh and cry. It is just even if you see it now, it hasn't really aged. Mm-hmm. Um, but by far, that's my that's my answer that's <laughs> by a mile. That's great. And then it sounds like you read so much uh, growing up, but is there a book or a series uh, that you're willing to admit that you've either never read or simply weren't able to finish? I tried so hard with Lord of the Rings. I really, really tried, and I couldn't do it. And then before I started writing, which was almost a sense almost a way of me of getting control, like creative control back because I was going on a lot of auditions and I was getting very close to things. One of them was the Hobbit. It was this major role in the Hobbit. And I found out through back channels that I was the this favorite for this role in the Hobbit. And I even started to try to read that because I was being considered, but I just, I don't know. I couldn't do Tolkien. I don't know. I had a, I couldn't do it. It's right. funny. <laughs> I couldn't get into it. That's funny. And then finally, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? My favorite movie based on a book. Wait, I never mind. Um, I'm not thinking. Hold on, stop. That was wrong. <laughs> the last one is, what is the last great book that you've read? 
The last great book that I've read. Oh, that's a good question. The last great book that I read. You know, I'm going to say Lincoln and the Bardo. I have never been a fan of George Saunders' short stories. They're just like a little too, uh, what's the word, abstract for me. But something was beautiful happened in Lincoln and the Bardo with this strange novel. It reminded me of Our Town. It reminded me of so many things. And I just, um, I was really kind of blown away by how he pulled it off stylistically and structurally and, and that it managed to be haunting and moving. And I was like, I never ever connected to this writer before, but like this really, this is something and I found that and even in itself fascinating. So I'm going to say that. That's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to read that soon. Uh, well, Derek scream all night comes out on July 24th. It sounds like it's going to be an exciting read and I wish you and the book all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And that does it for another episode of What Book Cooked You? Special thanks to Derek Moon for joining me. His book, Scream All Night, comes out on July the 24th. And this book sounds great, so I hope you'll check it out. And I hope you also check out the many other conversations I've had uh, with authors and book people. And if you have enjoyed them, uh, please leave a review. I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading. <laughs>